welcome guys to the final episode of the way of kings we'll be starting words of radiance pretty soon we might have a week break between not sure but next week will be a finale episode and then we've got some individual content for you guys as well so look forward to that and enjoy the the ending of the way of kings i am curious about like i said before the we see a correlation in the Shalon chapters that we learned from Yasna with Parchman and the Voidbringers. I yes. guess they're the same thing. Okay. Kinda. So Elliot, sorta. In the outline, you mentioned this, and you you say you're skeptical. So when the when the reveal here comes that Yasna believes the Parshendi and or the Parshman are the Voidbringers. Elliot, you say you're skeptical. You wanna, you wanna explain? So let's give this context for for a second. So Shalon is talking to Yasna. We kind of skipped a, a little bit, but essentially Shalon convinces Yasna, "Hey, you need to take me under your wing. I have this ability that you apparently also have, and we can be we can be a team. We can be partners." We we talked before about orders of knights radiant. Apparently, they're in the same order of knights radiant or or something similar, which is kind of cool. So she has a lot of leverage-ish now over Yasna. They come together. Shalon says, okay, I can help you with whatever you're studying. What? Tell me what you're, what you're studying, what you're figuring out. And she, the reveal we get there is, okay, I'm studying Voidbringers. We knew that. The conclusion she's come to is the Voidbringers are the Parshman and the Parshendi. And that in the, the battle where the history books tell you that man defeated the Voidbringers, Instead of banishing or destroying the Voidbringers, the theory is, okay, we, instead of banishing or destroying them, we enslaved them and we created the Parshmen and created these, you know, completely subservient beings that will build our houses for us and take care of our kids for us and cook our food, basically slaves or, or servants, however you want to, you want to phrase that. I say I'm skeptical because I don't know if I buy it. I don't know if I buy it. The The only real comparison evidence we've seen so far, I'm sure we're going to dive into this a ton in the next book, but the real only evidence we've seen so far is like their skin. Yasna talks about in the history books, it talks about their beings of like ash and, and fire. Mm -hmm. And then they look at the parchment and look at, oh, he's got black and red skin. Like that, that's definitely a, a parallel, a correlation there. But everything we've learned about the Parshendi the fact that they fight honorably. They seem to have a developed culture. They seem to have this identity that is not at maybe a closer look evil. Maybe they are a lot more than we think they are. And that's been kind of the discovery on the Shattered Plains that we've had up until this point. None of that fits with these beings of darkness that are here to wipe out the human race, which is what we, at least at this point, are assuming have been told at least the Voidbringers were. And so, I don't know. I'm I'm not really buying it yet. When Dalinar was fighting the Parshendi on the tower, he hears the voice unite them, and he asks himself, Roshar was united once. Did that include the Parshendi? Did that include yes. the Parshman? And... Assuming the Voidbringers are the Parshendi, 
I doubt that would be the case. That if Roshar was united, it was without the Parshendi because they are the Voidbringers are have been depicted to us as dark, mindless, evil beings trying to kill humans, and there's no repercussion for killing them. But you're right that both Kaladin and Dalinar have definitely come to the conclusion that the Parshendi are completely coherent beings that have a culture, that have a that have music, they have art on their on their in their beards and stuff. They they have culture. They're not mindless. So I guess I think I'm in I'm in one of two camps at this point. Either the Parshman and the Parshendi are not Voidbringers, and Yasna has come to the wrong conclusion here, or maybe on the other side of the spectrum, maybe they maybe they are Voidbringers, and Voidbringers are not what we think they are. Maybe maybe Voidbringers they have this epic, cosmic, evil-sounding name, but maybe they're not. Maybe Voidbringers were completely misunderstood, and maybe that's the disconnect. But I feel there's some disconnect here. The pieces are not matching up. Sure. I've thought about this disconnect, and my my instinct was to assume that the parchment that we have now are the Voidbringers of the past, but they've changed over the years and they're more like domestic domestic and such you know and, and so they've kind of developed and, and are chill you know but the way i think about it is something happened they probably used to be peaceful as well and something happened that kind of clicked and kind of set them off and they became the void bringers essentially that's basically been my my instinct as to what happened there. So I, I kind of do think that the Parshendi are the Voidbringers. Um, or maybe they are potential Voidbringers, I guess, if, if you want to be specific. Like, they literally are the Voidbringers, but not right now. Not unless you make them mad <laughs> kind of thing. Sure. So... Unless you guys have anything else on those ones, we can push through to the last Shalon chapter here. Um, Yasta and Shalon have decided to go to the Shattered Plains and study the Parshendi that Dalinar and Kaladin are fighting. And Yasna has an interesting reveal for Capsule, and Shalon has a pretty personal tie to it. So capsule turns out was a ghost blood and we don't know anything about them yet this is i believe this is the first time they've been mentioned um this isn't like a vocab word we've had in the past without explanation um he's revealed to be a ghost blood and he has the same symbol tattooed on his i believe it's his arm that the man who came to ask about yas or to ask about shallan's soulcaster um, he had that tattooed as well. So assuming that means the same thing, they're both part of the ghost bloods and they are after the Parshendi the same as Yasna is. I have a lot to say about this if I can. So, okay. Two things. One, slightly overlooked the fact that we find out Shalon killed her father. I was waiting for a chance to bring that in because <laughs> I got to say, I called it. Yes, you did. I called you that did. one. You did. That's Very all I'm impressed. Very impressed. 
Yeah, I don't know how we overlooked that. I guess, you know, there's a lot of big stuff that's going on here, and it's so enormous that we we almost overlooked Shalon admitting she killed her own father, um, which answers a lot of questions, in all honesty. But we also see that or she admits that he was a member of the Ghost Bloods. Uh, and I'm unsure about how significant this is because it seems like it could potentially be an enormous thing and maybe even lead to the main protagonist or antagonist or a major antagonist group. I honestly would expect that these ghost bloods would be the major antagonist of Words of Radiance, Shalon's book. Maybe not the ultimate antagonist of the series, but what Shalon personally has to deal with if Kaladin or Dalinar and them were dealing with Sadius, you know, um, her respective enemy. So that was my main thought about that, I guess, was that I think the ghost bullets are evil and bad, but it's maybe more localized to Shalon's life or storyline rather than the ultimate scheme of things. So I'll kind of throw in two, two uh, assumptions for you guys. Assuming that Shallan's father was a ghost blood, and, well, let, let me ask this first. Where did Shallan get her shard blade? The, the assumption would be her from her father. Okay, because he's a bright lord, and Yakovet has does have shard blades. Right. And assuming that his her father is a ghost blood, do you guys think that once they find out that his her father is dead, that they'll want their shard blade back? No. <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> nah, you can have it. I think it's kind of impressive to myself that I did not make that connection, but I, I've made lots of connections. I feel like that are probably big stretches, you know, all the way across the board. I didn't, I didn't even think about that. That's how she got her shard blade. She killed her dad and took his shard blade. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. What a, what a reaction. Wow. Absolutely. Well, and that does raise the stakes. I hadn't quite thought about it in that way too. We, we'd assumed that the people that had come to Shallan's homeland demanding their soul caster or, or we, we kind of assumed that they were they want their soul caster back but correct trevor you bring up a great point if shallan's father is a ghost blood and perhaps either got his shard blade from them or they know he has one they probably want that too so the the stakes just got raised a little bit and if she's allying herself with yasna who they've already tried to kill uh, they might go after her. I gotta say, an assassination attempt here doesn't quite fully make sense for me. I'm, I'm sure we're gonna learn more about this, but Yasna talks about they're they're a rival group seeking like the same information that she is. That doesn't quite seem grounds to me to to try and get her assassinated. I mean, if they're trying to figure out the same stuff that she is. They should just go off and figure out that stuff. Why? Why is it so competitive? Why does? Why do they need to be the only ones who have that knowledge that Voidbringers are Parchment? I'm not sure quite how they 
expect to use that in a way that they need Yasna to not be around also knowing that. So it's not quite all there for me as to why they go to this length to try and remove her from the equation. I was almost on the other end of that. Not in why would they go to such lengths. Knowing what very little we know about Ghostbloods. They don't seem like a good, a good group, you know. Um, at a minimum, we've seen them attempt assassinations. But I guess they're very discreet and hidden enough that what they wouldn't do something very public. My thought was like, you know, Shalon does have a shard blade, but she doesn't seem to be the most, you know, experienced warrior. So like, I feel like they could just get her, you know? Right. And so I'm a little confused that if they wanted it that bad, why wouldn't they just like kill her? You know, like the poison attempt seems a little like too casual, like too casual, too sneaky. That there's got to be something bigger. And so yeah, I don't, I don't fully know what to think about the assassination attempt. It doesn't seem like the most efficient way to get their job done. Yeah, fair enough. We've been talking about a lot, a lot about Shalon and Yasna and Zeth, but there is a Kaladin chapter in here, which we should we should jump to. The I really I really enjoy this Kaladin chapter sometimes even more than the epic Kaladin chapters we get in Part Four, because it's Kaladin finally resting. He has he's arrived. He's finally in his mind saved someone. And that is so important for the character that we've come to know that he's his mind is finally at ease that they don't the bridge that bridge four don't need to kill anyone if they don't want to in, anymore. They have been requested to be Dalinar's personal guard, but they don't have to accept that if they want. They are free men. They've been freed. Kaladin has succeeded, and that it's such a good scene when he shows up to the campfire. Um, and finally rests his head on Dalinar's cloak that he gave him, and it's it's such a it's such a good scene for me that he's finally resting. He can finally let out a sigh of relief and say, "I did it for now. That's enough. I saved them." I agree, and I had even spoken about it before that no matter how good Kaladin would do, he was always incredibly hard on himself almost to an uncomfortable extent. Right. Um, but this time he really sits back and, and thinks about, hey, like, these are lives that were saved rather than these were lives that were lost. I think that's a really important, you know, moment of development for, for Kaladin. So I was super happy about that. It's a very satisfying Kaladin chapter. It's a... Some of the other chapters here in part five kind of open up a bunch of questions this one not really it, this was kind of your your sentimental feel good wrap-up chapter it right. feels like we've we've brought kaladin to a a fairly happy place i mean obviously he's still got some more development to go i'm i'm sure but this this brings it to a a pretty good conclusion as far as this storyline goes yeah and something I want to point out between Dalinar and Kaladin, they have this, they have this conversation of 
you know, thanks for saving me, thanks for saving me, blah, 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 back and forth. And Dalinar says, I need your help. I need you to be my bodyguards. And he has this whole conversation with him. He offers him a captain spot on this spot. He promotes him to captain without Kaladin even, like, confirming that he'll stay yet. And this entire time, Dalinar doesn't ask once about the brands on his forehead. Kaladin has two huge brands that says Sasnan, which is slave, and Shash, which is dangerous. And Shash isn't given to a lot of people. It's reserved for this guy is legitimately dangerous. And Dalinar doesn't ask about them once. Any thoughts on this? I had not noticed that. I I had totally forgotten about the brands that are that are on Kaladin's forehead. He doesn't talk about them a lot. They're not brought up too much. So I I didn't even think about how obvious that would be Dalinar. That's the first thing Dalinar would notice in a conversation with with Kaladin of like, oh man, you've got a slave and a dangerous brand. Let me let me jump in here real quick. That is the first thing he notices. So when Kaladin saves him on the Shattered Plains. When he goes to confront him after the battle, that's one of the first things he notices is he has slave brands on his forehead. Yeah, I, I totally didn't even think about that in the context of this, that you're right. Dalinar doesn't even ask him. Doesn't, doesn't even, you know, it's not even in the conversation. Hmm. Do you think that's foolish of Dalinar to not ask him why he's dangerous? Or do you think that's honorable to not ask about his past? I think it's definitely a testament to Dalinar's character that we've seen. Uh, I think it's very honorable in that he he's spoken with Kaladin and he's seen Kaladin work and his honesty and how he leads his men. And he cares about that. He doesn't care, I don't think, about the, you know, even the slave brand. Dalinar is also, I feel like, very aware of kind of the corrupt behavior with slavery in in Roshar and bridge crews and stuff. He doesn't like that. He doesn't really stand for it. And so I don't think he would take that to heart or react exactly in the same way that others might. Trevor, you ask whether it's foolish or whether it's honorable. I feel like it's kind of both. I think Dalinar is... He's taken his lesson he's learned from the betrayal of Stadius to heart and the conversation that he and, and Adolin have of they trusted Stadius and Stadius betrayed them. But they would not have done anything different. They they gave Stadius a chance. They reached out to Stadius and said, hey, let's do this together. Like, here's a chance for us to come together and achieve something for, for Alethkar. And Stadius betrayed that trust. But Here's Dalinar kind of entering into a similar situation. He's he's going to now be trusting Kaladin a lot over the next book. He just put him in charge of his honor guard, in charge of protecting his house from the rest of the high princes that aren't going to going to be too thrilled with what he's about to do next. He's going to be in charge of protecting him from a certain assassin in white who just got assigned to come to the Shattered Plains and assassinate Dalinar. Yep. A lot's going to be riding in Kaladin's hands, and Dalinar puts his trust in there, even though he sees the the slave and the the dangerous brand on him. So I think he's being true to, to what he's learned here. He he probably knows full well he's he's taking a risk here, but he said, 
hey, I've seen you do something honorable. I'm going to put my trust in you. But he doesn't even ask. He doesn't ask why he got a Shash brand, you know? Like, nope. It's crazy. He's like, you saved my, you saved my life. I'm going to put you in charge of my honor guard and protect my entire family. That's, that's so awesome to me. He's waiting to have that conversation at the at the bar after Calvin's got a few beers in him. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, by the way, where did where'd you get that uh, Shash brand from? Must have been a crazy story. Oh, yeah. only, only problem is Dalinar doesn't drink. Yeah, uh, yeah, that would be a problem. Also, he would then require Kaladin not to drink because he'd be in his army. Yeah, true. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Dalinar gets his own chapter to... Actually, the last chapter, besides the epilogue, to close the book. And we have a couple of interesting reveals here. One is... It, the Almighty is the one who's been speaking to him, or at least that's what's been revealed to us, whether we trust that or not. Two, the Almighty can't hear him. So as he's been talking back and forth with the Almighty through these visions, everything that the Almighty has been saying has been pre-recorded, if you will. And he's been assuming he's been having this two-way conversation, and there's just like these cryptic, weird answers to his questions. But no, he's... The Almighty has set up a, a video for him to watch, and he can't react with it, or he can't interact with it. So the events are going to happen. The things that are going to be said are going to be said, and he can he can change it a little bit, and the characters in the visions will kind of look at him weird and go on with what they're doing, as we've seen them do in the past. And But they, especially the voice, doesn't react to him at all. So, any thoughts on these? So, this reveal, it, it makes sense. It, it explains what happened, but I, I gotta say, I, I don't know that I like this reveal. This this feels a little bit to me like an author's cop-out. If, if you go back and you read that chapter where Dalinar has the vision where he fights off the the midnight essence it's a pretty epic scene it, it's pretty awesome he then talks to this voice who we've just learned is the almighty and where he gets the what he thinks is direction to trust sadius if you go and read that i i don't know it, it seems a bit forcing it to claim that that voice cannot hear dalinar that that interaction in particular seems very obvious that they're having a two-way conversation. And I, I totally am with Dalinar in jumping in immediately to, oh, we just had a conversation and I learned this. Uh, if you go and just read the Almighty's words in that one, it doesn't read to me like like a message that's being given. So I'll be I'll be completely honest here and say this. I don't I don't quite buy this. I don't know that this was I, I mean I have to buy it. It's the author. This is what's happening, but it's <laughs> I don't quite like the way this is pulled off. I feel like the 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 sheet's been ripped up out from under me as a reader a little bit. I, I talked before when we had the capsule reveal and just now with the Teravangian reveal. Both of those are are big plot twists, but I feel like they they were set up well. They were shocking, but they're not unbelievable. It, it's sure. not like 
you, you read it and you're like, oh, no, that's not possible. You go back and you're like, oh, yeah, that, oh, okay, interesting. This one, you kind of get that twist and it's like, really? Really? I don't know. What were you guys' thoughts? Yes, I, I actually like fully agree with you, Elliot. I was thinking the same thing and I was just about to say that. In that, honestly, the bar for content and for plot development with these interactive flashbacks and visions is extremely like hard to uphold. So that's like reasonable, but it does kind of feel like a, it kind of feels like the visions were just like put into a box. It doesn't matter that much what happens in them. You just kind of get a glimpse and it's more world building than earth shattering, I guess. Um, (laughs) Very poetic. Um, And so I was a little bit upset about this. I think that's the only thing throughout the book right now that I'm a little bit upset with. Even even looking back at the old Shalon chapters, they are necessary. I'll admit it. (laughs) Um, But this, this I was a little sad about. I'll completely agree with with that too. This is the one and only thing I think in the entire book where it kind of broke my immersion in the story for a second. It's the only moment in this entire 1,250 pages where I kind of paused and was like, eh, okay. Everything else I was fully in on. I think everything was very smooth, very well done. This is the first time I've kind of paused and and kind of said, eh, I don't like that. That's fair. I certainly have had the same reaction because you're right when you go back and read that chapter and of the of the midnight essence he it it reads as if he's responding directly to dalinar's question and that's exactly dalinar's reaction too it's finally a direct answer to something and then here at the end we're just no that was just random unlucky that you asked that question right then oh well now i i I really do want to come back to this after having learned more when we're when we're done with later books, maybe if we're done with all the books that have been released, come back to this and read this section again and see if I still feel the same way about this, if there's maybe going to be some more reveals that maybe patch some of the holes right now. But just at, on the first read through, it just feels a little bit jarring. Sure. All right. But that, but that being said, if you take it for face value, it is quite the reveal and it does restore your faith in the visions you know we, we were kind of at the point where we were wondering are the visions misleading dalinar intentionally should he be trusting them is there you know that th- there was even kind of a time we talked about before about honor and how the vision said be honorable and then sadius uses dalinar's honor to betray him the question was okay did the vision like intentionally set him up here i, I think this exonerates that pretty pretty well if you take it at face value like i was saying this is, like you said, just a it's an SOS message. It's a, a message in a bottle, if you will, that's just been kind of handed to Dalinar to, to play out. So he's he's learning a lot of information, but now he understands, okay, I can't ask questions. I can just listen. Right. And at the end, the Almighty tells him that he's dead and that Odium has killed him. Any Any thoughts? I feel like that should be like a mind-blowing, earth-shattering thing, but we, we just don't know enough about the Almighty or like what the 
what the gods of this world are. We haven't really interacted with them at all with maybe the, the one exception of being the Stormfather that uh, Kaladin's kind of interacted with a little bit. So I, I feel like I'm I'm not understanding the the gravity of what was just revealed. The Almighty was killed by Odium. I think it was pretty clear what, what was in the in the thing. I, I kind of pause like, oh, that sounds really big and important, but I don't understand why. So the reason why it's kind of dropped like it is, is this means something to you if you've read Mistborn. So in Mistborn, without it, without too many spoilers or anything like that, Sanderson really, in, in Cosmere books, Sanderson really enjoys having a deity talk to a human and the juxtaposition there of someone with supernatural powers or a person that on this planet, they would consider them a deity from their perspective, like little bitty Roshar, they're gonna they're gonna see this person as a deity. And he really enjoys having deities talking to normal people. And so this juxtaposition of the Almighty talking to Dalinar has happened in other Cosmere books, and if you've read them, you'll under you'll you'll see this and understanding the fact that the Almighty is dead is really important from an expanded Cosmere reader. But because you guys aren't, it kind of falls flat for you. That makes me feel a little better about it. I was feeling kind of the same way that it was like this big end note of the book of I'm dead, Odium killed me. I was like, whoa. It's like, okay. Zodium again, right? Right. Um, uh, and so I, I wasn't like floored by it, but yeah, I do feel like it's it's a very huge thing. Yeah. Definitely something to remember and take on onward. Um, let's see. You want to push through the epilogue? I do. I have a lot to say about this one, and I think Elliot does too. And I kind of want to go first. Go for so it. So my my first thought. Give us a little setup before you before you dive in. Yes. Okay. So the epilogue we see Wit or Hoyd, however you want to see it, and he is plucking his little instrument. I don't remember what exactly what it was called, um, but it was specifically there was a lot of detail um, about this. It was beautiful imagery about how it's an instrument that you pluck and almost chat with rather than strum and. Um, and he, my favorite line of this was he's he's there and he sees these soldiers who are the on the night's watch. Mm-hmm. It's fun of that a little bit. Um, he says, "I'm waiting for the storm to come or storm to arrive." Yep. And they're like, "What do you mean? There's no high storm tonight?" And I was like, "Whoa, okay, he knows something we don't." And so they're here and they're talking just about big hypothetical stuff. Like what's the most important gift a man can have or, or talent. Right. Talk about music, inventing, things like that. A typical philosophical wit chapter. Right. This yeah, is wit just having fun, you know? Is. He's he's toying with the these little <laughs> Night's Watch shoulders, heads, just picking up their brains and stuff. Uh, typical wit fun and then 
And then the storm arrives. And the storm is a person that we don't, we do and we don't know a lot about. And I think that's what Elliot is likely going to talk about. Mm-hmm. We see a herald. Maybe use our spell check word. Talonel Elian. Elin. Mm-hmm. Close enough. Um, he breaks down this door, goes into the city, and says that the desolation has come. And it's just this incredibly dramatic scene. That's my two-minute summary of the whole chapter, but there's a lot to break down there. Yeah, I don't know if Elliot wants to to talk about that specifically or that character. I was really interested about this Harold and and his shard blade, which is very different from everyone else's, which I think is a huge hint as well. I I too keyed in on the sword. I keyed in on his his name. I reading back through, I honestly I don't think it actually even said this, but I, I got the impression that this guy was like bigger than a, a normal human being. Uh, I don't know why I came away with that impression, but it, it, it felt like that. But immediately when he says, I am the, the herald, I, I immediately flipped back to the prelude, the very, very beginning of the chapter. We, we've just read the last like three pages of the book. Now I'm going to flip back to the, the first three pages of the book because that's the, the information that we have on him before. And it's it's very obvious. I think we get yeah we get the same name referenced. This is the herald that the other heralds left behind. If you remember all the way back to the prelude, we we follow one of the the uh, one of the heralds. He's he calls himself Kalak in that uh, in that chapter. He he kind of arrives at this point that, that's supposed to be their meeting point. He meets Yezrian, which is another one of the the heralds, and they they basically say. We can't go through with this. We can't continue doing what we're doing. We're gonna we're gonna leave them. But one of the heralds, Talonel, died, and so he was sent back to wherever they go when they die. It's it's referenced as a very not happy place. We we hear the term damnation used a couple mm-hmm. times throughout the book. I kind of think of that when I when I go back and read that. Maybe he's been sent to this place that's perhaps an equivalent of hell. And I, I remember all the way back to our very first episode on this. My my theory was that this guy was going to come back and that he was going to be pissed at the other heralds for ditching him because they, according to their their pact, they weren't supposed to. So this is this is that guy, and he's back. He's he's back on the scene. I have I have more thoughts, but do you guys either of you guys want to chime in before I keep going? Something I just want to key in here. He doesn't seem that upset. He's he's been down there for four thousand five hundred years, and he doesn't seem that angry. He seems more tired and you know completely floored as as he collapses. But he doesn't seem particularly angry. He apologizes, doesn't he? He says, "I'm sorry, I failed." Yeah, he he does. He says he says I have failed. He just seems he just seems exhausted. He seems worn out. Or actually, I'm trying to decipher this because we see him. He has a shard blade, and yeah, you're right, Paul. It's described as maybe a more impressive shard blade than we've typically seen, which that fits with the prelude. If you go back to the prelude, there's a, a short description that there, there's even a comparison to shard blades. It says 
these blades of the heralds are so magnificent and so incredible, even more than the shard blades, which at that point didn't mean anything to us. We had no idea what shard blades were. Now we do. So now we get a, a little bit of comparison. So that was kind of fun. So that's a little more evidence for this. But I, I realize when he falls to the ground, he drops his sword. And it very clearly says the sword did not vanish. And I highlighted that because I feel like that's important. And the reason why is in the descriptions of shard blades that we get for like Dalinar, very specifically, Dalinar will explain if a if a shard bearer falls in battle and drops their sword, it will disappear unless they're dead. The the shard blade will disappear, and that's that's an intentional thing so that they don't get their shard blade you know stolen when they fall over. Only the shard blade will only stay there if the shard bearer himself is dead. And so my first thought on this is, oh, this guy just died because he just came through the gate, fell to the ground. His shard blade did not disappear. He's dead. But as I was rereading in the prelude, I read rather closely a, a note that would contradict this. So if you read in the, in the prelude, Kalak, who's the herald that we're following along with, he arrives at this scene and he sees the, the row of swords that are in the ground there. And he immediately knows, oh, something's different. They've all left their swords here. And he, he, here's what he says to himself. Each was a masterly work of art, flowing in design, inscribed with glyphs and patterns. He recognized each one. If their masters had died, the blades would have vanished. That's different than your typical shard blade that we've seen that like down our wields. And so as soon as I read that, I reversed my thought on this Harold guy being dead. I think he's now not dead because Harold blades apparently are different than your standard run-of-the-mill, standard-issue shard blade. Your standard shard blade. Yes, yeah. exactly. So I, I think he's not dead. I think he's still alive, even though at first I thought he was. He's back. He's the, the herald that was abandoned. He doesn't seem upset. So I'm curious what, what's going to be. I'm wondering if we're going to get to interact with him or if he's just going to kind of disappear. Heralds have been rather lofty, beings at this point so to have one now in the story is kind of like whoa um yeah that was my lengthy dissection of that yeah no i agree in the prelude specifically it talks about these 10 blades that are yeah far but far above shard blades and, and like you said it shows that they only disappear if the wielder dies if the herald dies and one thing i really want to point out is Wit knew he was coming. Yes, he was totally there waiting for. I was like, "Excuse me, like, I don't know how he knows that." So, so there's definitely I, I'm what I want to see most going on from here, as if there were more Wave Kings. I mean, hopefully in Words of Radiance we'll see some. I want to see more Wit chapters. I want to see Wit talk with. Talonel Elan, yes. I'm going to have to look over every time to remember his name. Um, I want to see that because Wit knows who he is, at least, I feel like. He definitely knows he was coming. Um, so I wonder if Wit has... I don't know what's going to go on there. I really don't know, but I really want to know. 
So, so I'm super curious about that. Um, and like you said about him being like mad, I actually, yeah, like Trevor was saying, he he's not mad at all, especially in the audio book. There's no even hint of that. He just kind of mopes in and is like, the desolation is here and then collapses. Um, so I, I don't even see him getting upset. I mean, I'm sure he's not happy that the other heralds are gone. Um, but I really don't know what to make of this. But this is definitely my highlight still of this entire episode. This is what I thought was the coolest. This is what I want to know the most about. But I, I don't know. I don't know anything right now. Other than we do know who he is. I'm curious about the timing of this. We we don't actually get, I think, anything concrete to tell us when in the timeline this epilogue is happening. So your your first assumption might be that it's happening immediately following the events that we just witnessed. So we, we kind of wrapped up a Kaladin storyline-ish. We just kind of wrapped up a Shalon storyline-ish. Is this epilogue event with Talonel showing up at Kolinar happening at the same time as this? I, I'm not really sure. And that could be important too, because he says the desolation has come, which I kind of read as, oh no, we're out of time. Whatever is coming is here, which that could have some really serious implications for everybody on Roshar. But part of me kind of wonders if maybe this is a little peek at what's coming later and that we've, this is maybe a little bit later in the timeline than we, we think it is. The flip side, though, the one clue that I think we might have about the timeline is at the very beginning of this chapter, Hoyd says, something just changed. That is the exact same phrase that Moash uses when Kaladin speaks the second ideal of the, the Knight's Radiant. Yes, when, it is. When Kaladin has his like level up, Moash, of all characters, looks up and says, we, we talked about this in our, our episode a couple weeks ago of... Oh, something just changed. So I wonder if that Kaladin level up triggered something. Was that the event that caused this Herald to come back at this time? I, I don't have anything else to support that other than Hoyd saying the exact same thing that Moash did. But maybe those two happened at the exact same time and Hoyd knew it was coming and Hoyd somehow knew where it was coming, but I don't know. What you just said reminded me of the uh, the Legend of Zelda paradox that when he pulls the Master Sword, that unlocks Ganon, but you need the Master Sword to seal away Ganon. So when you when you say the words, it starts the starts the desolation, but when you but you need, you the, need words the words to, to stop the desolation. Exactly. Right. Right. Any closing thoughts on the epilogue before we we zoom out a little bit and talk about part five? I will say that Hoyt is, if not my favorite character in the entire Cosmere, but my second favorite. So I do enjoy Hoyt chapters just as much as you do, Paul. Is your first favorite in this book? My first favorite is in this book. Kaladin. Didn't you say it was Zeth? Okay. No, Kaladin is my favorite. Or I think way back at the beginning of our podcast stuff, I think he said that Zeth was like what you were most interested in initially. Yeah. Which is fair because he's also he was super exciting. But yeah, 
no further questions your honor wonderful moving on part five as a whole any any thoughts on part five paul any thoughts before i monologue i, I was gonna say I, i've seen a little bit of elliot's notes and my name is paul and i support uh, this message <laughs> uh, over to you elliot <laughs> sorry i gotta recover from that one real quick <laughs> okay okay yep so so you know me we've we've just finished a part so i i try to think back across that uh, part and and think about what we've what we've just seen and how to try and pull together what uh, we've learned or or take away from that part as a whole and part five was an interesting one just because it was very different than all all the rest of them it didn't really have like a consistent plot line to it we got a lot of different characters all just kind of wrapping up a few loose ends, dropping a few, you know, hints and, and cliffhangers for us to kind of wrap up the book. So I struggled a little bit to try and come up with a, a theme for this one, but I, where I ultimately ended up was, was one I was pretty happy with that I think ties in quite a bit of, of this part five. And that was simply the word trust in each of the little sections that we read here. I, I find myself asking a question or, or noting something relating to trust in the, in the Shalon storyline. Shalon, Yasna is now trusting Shalon with her secret that Shalon has just learned. Shalon now has to trust Yasna not to send her to jail for a hundred years, which I'm pretty sure is the threat that uh, that Yasna gives to to Shalon. So we see a, a relationship of trust starting to build there. When we go over to the Kaladin and Dalinar storylines, which I think it's awesome that those two storylines are kind of now one. We we theorized way back in the beginning, you know, how in the world is is Kaladin going to start to interact with these other you know storylines? Now Kaladin and Dalinar are, are a very similar storyline, if not the same one, and they are now starting to build this relationship of of trust. Dalinar has just given Kaladin this incredible role of head of the honor guard, like we were just talking about, and he's putting a lot of trust in him. I think Kaladin is doing the exact same to Dalinar. I mean, this is we we talked about last episode pivotal maybe it was two episodes ago pivotal for Kaladin and that he finally is trusting a light eyes and Dalinar is that is that light eyes that he's finally putting trust in and Dalinar is earning that trust so lots of trust there and then looking into some of the other off and on chapters we we are now not sure if we can trust Parshman we don't know if you know Yasna is terrified that they're going to somehow turn on everyone and destroy the entire human race because of where they're at so we don't know if we can trust them and then my last one is kind of an interesting one. And, and Paul, you actually touched on this when we were talking about Zeth. I don't know that Teravangian can fully trust Zeth as much as he thinks he can. Teravangian makes a, a comment of, you are completely trustworthy. You know, I wasn't too scared about putting my name on the, the list because I knew that, that when you walked in the room, I would reveal myself and you wouldn't kill me. You know, he, he has full trust in Zeth at this point. But as we saw, as you pointed out, Paul, Zeth just about broke his oath and killed Teravangian right there on the spot. He just about turned on him, which we know is huge for Zeth. Zeth is so bound to his oath stone that 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 is huge for him to even be considering that. I wonder if that's a hint of what's to come. I I very much wonder if Zeth is really going to start questioning his his tie, his oath that he's taken to do whatever he's told. So I don't know that Teravangium can necessarily trust Zeth as much as he thinks he can. So lots of questions about trust, lots of bonds of trust being built. 
I've said the word trust too many times now. That's my theme for part five. Just a little tidbit for the future. You've said that you're looking forward to the Zeth Kaladin interaction and Kaladin is now Dalinar's personal bodyguard and Zeth has been tasked to kill Dalinar. So going to happen. All of our storylines are about to converge in the Shattered Plains. Kaladin and Dalinar are are set up there. Zeth has just been just been tasked to go to the Shattered Plains and perform an assassination and Yasna and Shallan are about to pack up and head to the Shattered Plains. So it's all happening uh right there in the eastern side of Roshar. It is. And also Zeth has also been you know, he's been thinking about it like when am I gonna fight someone who can challenge me? Well He's coming. Kaladin is a, a search finder too, so that is gonna be the chapter. That's gonna be the chapter. That's a lot to say. That that's is, gonna be an awesome. It's going to be a chapter, fight. you're right. That is going to be a chapter. Alright. So not really in the in the book, but this is this is set as an end note in the book. And I'm gonna read the entire thing because this is something I found on my on just on this read through. I've read this book eight times and I just found this. End note. Above silence, the illuminating storms, dying storms, illuminate the silence above. The above sample is noteworthy as it is a ketek, a com- complex form of holy Voran poem. The, the ketek is not only reads the same forward and backwards, allowing for alteration of verb forms, but it also is divisible in five distinct smaller sections, each of which makes a complete thought. The complete poem must form a sentence that is grammatically correct and theoretically poignant in meaning. Because of the difficulty at constructing, constructing a ketek, the structure was once considered the highest and most impressive form of all Voran poetry. The fact that this one was uttered by an illiterate dying Herdazian in a language he barely spoke should be, particu- should be of particular note. There is no record of this particular ketek in any repository of Voran poetry, so it is very unlikely that this subject was merely repeating something he once heard. None of the ardents we showed it to had any knowledge of it, though three did praise the structure and asked to meet the poet. We leave it to his majesty's mind on a strong day to puzzle out the meaning of why the storms might be important, and what the poem may mean by indicating that there is silence both above and below the storms. Joshua, head of his majesty's silent gatherers, Tenetetev, 1173. Now, before I get your reactions to this, I want to flip back to page 35 in my book. It's probably about page 40 for you, Elliot. And it says, part one, above silence. Flipping forward to part two, it says, the illuminating storms. Part three says dying. Part four is storms illumination. And part five is the silence above. So deep philosophical in-world repercussions aside, this is a very cool Easter egg for the rereader of flipping back to t- the title of the parts as if this is this full book is a huge poem that somebody wrote in world 
and the the parts are the different parts of the poem i i just found that and i thought that was really cool any thoughts i i did not notice that at all i i read that end note and i found that fascinating the idea of the the ketek the the symmetrical poem if you will very in line with the the Voran beliefs for for symmetry but I did not realize that that aligned with the names of the parts. That is fascinating. And the the five different parts that we read, the the requirement for the Ketek to have five different sections. That's really interesting. I was proud of myself. I don't I don't know if you're supposed to I don't know if you're supposed to find that very quickly, but I had not I had not noticed that until about two days ago. I feel like I'm going to have to sit and think about that for a really long time to figure <laughs> out the significance of that. I did not even get the uh, whole symmetrical poem thing until just now. Like I said previously, so I've listened to this whole thing on audiobook, and I didn't uh, definitely did not pick that up. But I, since we finished this book, I did order the physical copy, and I got it today. So I'm just now seeing this, and my mind is kind of being blown right now i'm gonna need a little while yeah. to, to save on that <laughs> yeah it's a completely different experience listening to the audiobook and reading the reading the physical book because there's things like that that i don't know i've listened to the audiobook more than i've read it and i would have never picked up on on those had i just listened to it but i did find those anyway next week we will be having a finale episode where we talk about the entire book, we do favorite quotes, favorite favorite scenes, talk about our favorite uh, favorite characters. You guys have just read a one thousand page one thousand page book. How you feel? What what a journey to to pull in the the relevant phrasing. What a what a path we we've, we've walked on to get here. And I gotta say, I've enjoyed every moment of it it's been incredibly difficult to read a book that's so exciting at such a slow pace for for this kind of book this is the kind of book that you pick up and you just can't put down and you tear through it at least the second half of it for sure once you get into the second half and things start to really move this is the kind of book that i would tear through in like you know a week and here we are we just took five months to to read this whole book and i gotta say that was painful at times to not be able to read further but at the same time, I love going through it at the rate that we did and really looking closely for the clues, looking for the significance in the events that were happening. And uh, this is this is my favorite. This is the, the most fun I've had reading a book in a, a really long time. My biggest thoughts about it is mostly just the the payoff for it. I. I'm not a natural reader. I don't don't normally just pick up books and read them. And so especially in the first half of this book, it was good. It was really good. And especially in retrospect, it's good. Um, but with the slow pace and everything, it, I wasn't super invested and enthralled. But with the, once you get to the second half, I was like, all right, we need to be reading a lot more chapters at once because I can't, like just stop here and wait another week to record or something like that because uh, I just wanted to get to the next part because it was super interesting um, so I am really looking forward to the next books especially now that I feel confident we we know the world you know we know the people 
we know the connections between most of them in a way and you so, think you know them uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know i know a little bits where we can we can piece stuff together at least so i feel like going into the next books it'll be a lot more exciting from the get-go so Alrighty. with that we will close our last episode on the way of kings we'll have a finale next week but beyond that this closes our wave kings journey thanks for joining me uh paul and elliot thank you trevor for guiding us through it agreed <laughs>